Continuing our examination of what is known as the Holiness Code, we now turn our attention to really two of the longest chapters in the entire Bible, Leviticus 13 and 14. Within these two chapters, and keep in mind there were no chapter breaks in the original manuscripts, but in these chapters God is establishing, He's laying out a very specific set, a detailed set of guidelines for how His people, the children of Israel, were to handle leprosy. Our approach to these two lengthy chapters are going to require that we divide them into two different studies. This morning we're going to look at the protocols for diagnosing leprosy. So we're going to look at the diagnosing of leprosy, a leprous infection, and an individual. Uh, We're going to look at an outbreak, how you diagnose an outbreak of leprosy in a person's clothing. All of that's encompassing chapter 13. But then what we're going to do is we're going to skip ahead to Leviticus 14, verses 33 through 57, which explains what should be done if leprosy is discovered in a physical dwelling. And so when you're, if you're a note taker, you're dividing these things up. Uh, leprosy, the diagnosing in a person, in clothing, garments, fabric, as well as a home. This approach will allow our second study to then focus kind of exclusively on this incredible, amazing ritual, these protocols laid out in the first 32 verses of Leviticus 14 for what a person was to do if miraculously they found themselves cleansed of leprosy, which is amazing when you, when you consider there was, it was incurable. And so we have 32 verses establishing what was to be done if the impossible, improbable, Uh, was to occur. Now, before we dive into the text, uh, and we're going to cover a lot of text this morning, uh, we do need to address an an overarching question. (laughs) What is leprosy? And I I know that sounds basic, but in actuality, defining leprosy is much more difficult than you might at first think. Now, for starters, you'll find this term along with its variations of leper or the leprous, occurring 68 times in the Bible. 68 times. 55 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. 13 times in the Greek New Testament. Now, in the Hebrew, the word that we have translated as leprous or leper is syraath. It's the Hebrew word. I did check a translation, and that is the correct pronunciation. Syraath. The word in the Hebrew this word we have for leper, it simply means to strike or can be used to describe the one who's been struck or stricken. The word, syraath, it's it's intentionally vague, meaning that the etymology of the Hebrew and, and kind of the development of our present translation ends up being critically important when you attempt to define what is being described in these chapters. When the Hebrew Old Testament was transcribed into the classical Greek, this took place around 200 B.C. The the manuscript became known as the Septuagint. This word, syraath, ended up being translated as lepra, which stemmed from the Greek noun lepis, which which meant to be scaly, like a fish. And it's from that Greek word, lepra, that we eventually end up with both the Latin and the English words leprosy, leper. 
Now, for reasons that will make more sense later in the study, please keep in mind that the link between the disease we encounter or about to encounter in Leviticus 13 and 14 and what individuals were infected with during the time of Christ, that link, that connection is undeniable and it's clear mainly from Jesus. When you look at Mark chapter 1, the healing of the leper, uh, it's, it's fascinating, but, but it becomes clear that Jesus, he tells the leper who is cleansed to go and present themselves at the temple for the particular ritual we'll find in Leviticus 14, meaning that Jesus was recognizing whatever that man was infected by, it had been diagnosed according to the Levitical law, chapter 13, and then would have to be pronounced clean. So the link between leprosy as we find it in the New Testament and what's being described here in the Old Testament is established. That being said, there's a lot of confusion. This is important. The gospel authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they use the Greek word lepra when talking about an infected person. They use that word for only one reason. It was the term that the Hebrew scholars had chosen when they translated Leviticus 13 from Hebrew into Greek, 200 B.C., the Septuagint. That's where big problems arise. You see, lepra is a terrible translation of the Hebrew word syraath. Now, to be fair, there isn't a Greek equivalent to that particular word. But the translators landed on lepra simply to describe the physical ailment but not translate the word. Understand that. Syrath, there's not a Greek translation. So they just said, well, the skin conditions, it looks scaly. So we're going to use this word, lepra. Confusion has ensued. One scholar that I read on this particular topic called this literally a linguistic blooper. The word should have never been translated into lepra. In fact, in the late 1940s, there was a group of, a group of rabbinical scholars who re-examined the specific translation of Syrah into lepra, and their conclusion is that it was a terrible, terrible mistake. Now, now here's the point. What is being described in Leviticus 13 and 14 and the rest of the, the Hebrew Old Testament, and by extension the Gospels, you can make a solid argument, is not leprosy in our modern understanding of the disease. Now today, we know leprosy by another name. We know leprosy as Hansen's disease. Uh, the disease was renamed in 1873, renamed to the uh, Hansen, the Norwegian scientist who had discovered the underlying bacterium. And yet the problem with defining what we find presented in the Bible as being leprosy, is that while there are some similarities to Hansen's, the pathology has some unavoidable differences. First, very quickly, the similarities. They both manifest as a scaly skin disease. And, and in both, we understand that this scaly skin disease was just an outer symptom of a deeper ailment. And in the case of Hansen's, leprosy is actually a neurological disorder. You lose the ability to, to feel, to have touch. In both the biblical leprosy and Hansen's, uh, each were considered to be death sentences. They, they were both incurable. 
As a human infection, both were painfully slow-moving. That's also true. And would, over time, yield devastating physical effects in a person's frame. Finally, in both situations, once diagnosed, the infected party would be quarantined from the rest of society. Now, the irony is that Hansen's disease, because it's bacterial and not viral, is very difficult to to transmit between humans. Hansen's disease, or what we understand as leprosy, is not actually contagious, which is kind of bizarre. Beyond that, pertaining to biblical leprosy, or sara'ath, I don't actually think it was contagious either, and that the, the quarantine had an entirely different purpose, which we'll get to in a few minutes. Now, regarding the differences, so those are the similarities, the differences between the two. Most notably, Whatever is being described in Leviticus 13 and 14 was not limited to human biology. Like, as we're going to see, this syraath could also infect the fabric and clothing, whether it was linen or leather. It could infect stone and plaster in the walls of a house. Furthermore, and and this blows my mind, in every instance, biblical leprosy is always described you know, as the person, their skin being turned white, even white as snow. It's, a, it's kind of a central component to Syra'ath. Did you know, though, that that physical characteristic has never been associated or witnessed with Hansen's disease? The turning of the skin white. Now, in closing our study, I'm going to return to this discussion about Syra'ath. Because what's happening in the passages that we're going to look at are much more radical than you'd ever think or even imagine. That being said, before we work our way through the text, this is what you need to know. What's being described here, while it will use the word leprosy, is not actually leprosy within its historical understanding. We're going to cover a lot of Scripture. Buckle up. We're going to go for it. Let's start here with the protocols for diagnosing a leprous infection in an individual. A lot of this stuff is straightforward, so we're going to just, as mentioned, plow through it with a little commentary here and there where necessary. We, we begin in verse 1, Leviticus 13, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a man has on the skin of his body a swelling, or that, that word literally, an inflammation, a scab or a bright spot, and it becomes on the skin of his body like a leprous sore. So it has this appearance. Then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest, or to one of his sons the priest. The priest shall examine the sore on the skin of the body, and if the hair on the sore has turned white, and the sore appears to be deeper than the skin, meaning it's concave, it is a leprous sore, then the priest shall examine him and pronounce him unclean. Not only is it interesting that a person was commanded, and think about that for a minute, a person is commanded you know, when, when early symptoms emerge, they're told to go to a priest <laughs> at the tabernacle and not a doctor. Like, that's a big clue. We're going to tie that in later, but, but make note of that. Right off the bat, don't go to a doctor. Something different. You need to go to the priest. But also notice, and, and this is significant, that the priest here, he's specific, the Lord is, that the priest was to examine the sore. He's an observer to then determine in his observations if what's happening is deeper 
than the skin. That phrase, deeper than the skin. It's a significant phrase. We'll, we'll run across it, in fact, seven times in chapter 13 alone. Like the idea that's being articulated is that the physical manifestation on the skin surface well, was an indication of something not good happening deeper below the surface. Verse 4, if, but if the bright spot is white on the skin of his body and does not appear to be deeper than the skin and its hair has not turned white, then the priest shall isolate the one who has the sore seven days. So an, an observational period. And the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. And indeed, if the sore appears to be as it was and the sore has not spread on the skin, then the priest shall isolate him another seven days. So this is a total of 14 days. Then the priest shall examine him again on that seventh day, the 14th. And indeed, if the sore has faded and the sore has not spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only a scab. Whew. And he shall wash his clothes and be clean, as we're going to see because of the seriousness of the situation here. These specific protocols, and the incredible amount, by the way, of detail. All these things existed in order to ensure something. That whoever it was that's coming to the priest to be examined isn't declared unclean falsely. All these details, all the protocols, all, all of the, the procedures are to ensure that there isn't a false diagnosis. Because, well, what happens was severe. Verse 7, But if the scab should at all spread over the skin, after he has been seen by the priest for his cleansing, he shall be seen by the priest again. And if the priest sees that the scab has indeed spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is leprosy. Syrath. But when the leprous sore is on the person, then he shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall examine him. And indeed, if the swelling on the skin is white, and it has turned the hair white, and there is a spot of raw flesh, and the swelling, it is an old leprosy on the skin of the body. The priest shall pronounce him unclean and shall not isolate him. Again, there's no reason now to observe, for he is unclean. And if leprosy, is, leprosy breaks out all over the skin, and the leprosy covers all the skin of the one who has the sore, from, note, his head to his foot, wherever the priest looks, then the priest shall consider Think about it. And indeed, if the leprosy has covered all his body, he shall pronounce him clean, who has the sore. It is all turned white, he is clean. Now, in this case, the scaly whiteness across the entire body, again, it has to be from head to toe, uh, probably an alarming situation, but he's clean. It's not leprosy. He doesn't have to be excommunicated. But when raw flesh appears on him, he shall be unclean. And the priest shall examine the raw flesh and pronounce him to be unclean, for the raw flesh is unclean. It is leprosy. Or if the raw flesh changes and turns white again, he shall come to the priest, and the priest shall examine him. And indeed, if the sore has turned white, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. Who has a sore, he is clean. Again, clearly important to God that there wasn't a false diagnosis. Verse 18. So we have kind of a subsection here. If the body develops a boil in the skin, so this is leprosy in regards to boils. Fun, isn't it? And it is healed. And in the place of the boil, there comes a white swelling or a bright spot. Reddish white. Again, the detail is amazing. 
Then it shall be shown to the priest, and if, when the priest sees it, it indeed appears deeper than the skin, and its hair has turned white, the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a leprous sore, which is broken out of the boil. But if the priest examines it, and indeed there are no white hairs in it, and it is not deeper than the skin, but is faded, then the priest shall isolate him seven days. And if it should at all spread over the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a leprous sore. But if the bright spot stays in one place, it is not spread. It is the scar of a boil, and the priest shall pronounce him clean. You following with me? We, we good? Got it? Important stuff. Verse 24, another subcategory. If the body receives a burn, so we're moving away from boils, now we're on to burns, on its skin by fire, and the raw flesh of the burn becomes a bright spot, reddish white or white, then the priest shall examine it, and indeed if the hair of the bright spot has turned white, and it appears deeper than the skin, it is a leprosy broken out of the burn. Therefore, the priest shall pronounce him unclean, it is a leprous sore. But if the priest examines it, and there are no white hairs in the bright spot, and it is not deeper than the skin, but is faded, then the priest shall isolate him seven days, and the priest shall examine him on the seventh day, again that being the fourteenth, and if it is spread over the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean, it is a leprous sore. But if the bright spot stays in one place, it's been a good bright spot, it has not spread on the skin, but has faded, it is a swelling from the burn, the priest shall pronounce him clean, it is just a scar from the burn. Verse 29, another category, if a man or woman has a sore on the head or the beard. If you're a woman with a beard, we have an entirely different issue. But again, uh, the scriptures are being inclusive. So <laughs> There's a joke I'm going to pass up there. A man or a woman has a sore on the head or the beard. Then the priest shall examine the sore, and indeed if it appears deeper than the skin, and there is in it ugh, a thin yellow hair. Then the priest shall pronounce him clean. I'm glad you guys are giggling. We're rolling. It is a scaly leprosy of the head or beard. But if the priest examines the scaly sore, and indeed it does not appear deeper than the skin, and there is no black hair in it, then the priest shall isolate the one who has the scale seven days. And on the seventh day, the priest shall examine the sore. And indeed, if the scale has not spread, and there is no yellow hair in it, thank goodness, and the scale does not appear deeper than the skin, he shall shave himself, but the scale he shall not shave. I assume if you're a female with a beard, you've worked really hard for that beard, so you don't have to shave. And the priest shall isolate the one who is the scale another seven days. On the seventh day, the priest shall examine the scale. And indeed, if the scale has not spread over the skin and does not appear deeper than the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. He shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the scale should at all spread over the skin after his cleansing, then the priest shall examine him. And indeed, if the scale has spread over the skin, the priest need not seek for yellow hair. He's unclean. But if the scale appears to be at a standstill, and there is no black hair growing up in it, the scale has healed, he is clean, the priest shall pronounce him clean. Verse 38, if a man or a woman has bright spots on the skin of the body, specifically white bright spots, then the priest shall look, and if the bright spots on the skin of the body are dull white, it's just a white spot that grows on the skin. He's clean. It's good to know. Verse 40, as for the man whose hair has fallen from his head, he's bald. 
but he's clean. Some of you were worried. He whose hair has fallen from his forehead. This is, you know, you've got, you're rocking the cul-de-sac. You've lost it in the front. Receding hairline. He whose hair has fallen from his forehead. He's bald on his forehead. But he is clean. Good, good, good news. And if there is on the bald head or the bald forehead a reddish-white sore, well, it's leprosy breaking out on his bald head or his bald forehead. Then the priest shall examine it, and indeed, if the swelling of the sore is reddish-white on his bald head or on his bald forehead, as the appearance of leprosy on the skin of the body, he is a leprous man, he is unclean. The priest shall surely pronounce him unclean. His sore is on his head. Verse 45, now the leper on whom the sore is, so this is kind of a more broad consideration, his clothes shall be torn, his head bare, he shall cover his mustache and cry out, unclean, unclean, he shall be unclean. All the days he has the sore, he shall be unclean, he is unclean. You get the the feeling he's unclean. And he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. We'll get to that in a few minutes. Let's look at the protocols for now diagnosing an outbreak of leprosy and a person's clothing, fabric. Verse 47. Also, if a garment has a leprous plague in it, saraha, whether it is a woolen garment or a linen garment, I guess if you've got polyester, you're okay. Rocking some spandex, you don't need to worry. Whether it is in the warp or woof of linen or wool. And, and the warp and the woof, these were the cross fabrics used in a loom. I know you all knew that, but I just thought I'd pass that along. Whether in leather or in anything made of leather, if the plague is greenish or reddish in the garment or in the leather, now, now the, this leprous plague is no longer manifesting in a, in a white format. This is gross, greenish, reddish. If this emerges, whether in the warp or in the woof or in anything made of leather, it is leprous plague. It shall shall be shown to the priest. The priest shall examine the plague and isolate that which has the plague seven days, and he shall examine the plague on the seventh day. If the plague has spread in the garment, either in the warp or the woof, and the leather or anything made of the leather, the plague is an act of leprosy. It is unclean. Now, what do you do with such a garment? Verse 52, he shall therefore burn that garment, which is the plague, whether warp, woof, Wool, linen, anything made of leather. It's an act of leprosy. The garment shall be burned in the fire. But if the priest examines it, indeed the plague is not spread in the garment, either in the wharf or the woof, anything made of leather, then the priest shall command that they wash the thing. That might be smart. And which is the plague? And he shall isolate it another seven days, and the priest shall examine the plague after it has been washed. And indeed, if the plague has not changed its color, though the plague has not spread, it's still unclean, you shall burn it in the fire. It continues eating away, whether the damage is outside or inside. If the priest examines it, and indeed the plague has faded after washing it, then he shall tear it out of the garment, so just the section, whether out of the wharf or out of the woof, out of the leather. But if it appears again in the garment, either in the wharf or the woof or anything made of leather, it is a spreading plague. You shall burn with fire that in which is the plague. And if you wash the garment, either, and we'll say it again, wharf or woof or anything made of leather, Again, the repetition here is to help with memorization. 
young kids memorize. So the repetition, the frequency of the words, it helps you the wharf, the woof, the anything made of leather. It's, it's just kind of, in the Hebrew, it, it, there's actually a, a rhythm to it, a bit of a beat. It appears in the garment, wharf, woof, whatever's made of leather, plague has disappeared from it, shall be washed a second time, shall be clean. This is the law of the leprous plague in a garment of wool or linen, either in the wharf, woof, anything made of leather, to pronounce it clean, to pronounce it unclean. Now let's just very quickly skip ahead. At now the protocols for diagnosing an outbreak of leprosy in a physical dwelling, namely a, a home. Uh, we'll skip the first 32 verses of chapter 14, landing on verse 33. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When you come into the land of Canaan, which I give you as a possession, and I put a leprous plague in a house in the land of your possession, and he who owns the house comes and tells the priest, saying, It seems to me that there is some plague in the house. Then the priest shall command that they empty the house. Before the priest goes in to examine the plague, that all that is in the house may not be made unclean. These were just steps to ensure you didn't lose everything in the home. Afterwards, once the house is emptied, the priest shall go in and examine the home. He shall examine the plague, and if indeed the plague is on the walls of the house with ingrained streaks, greenish or reddish, which appear to be deep in the wall, then the priest shall go out of the house, to the door of the house, shall shut up the house seven days. Again, this is very similar to what we find with human beings. The priest shall come again on the seventh day and look, and indeed if the plague has spread on the walls of the house, then the priest shall command that they take away the stones in which is the plague. They shall cast them into an unclean place outside the city. He shall cause the house to be scraped inside all around. The dust that they scrape off, they shall also pour in an unclean place outside the city. Then they shall take other stones, put them in the place of those stones. He shall take other mortar plaster the house. And if the plague comes back, even after all that work, and breaks out in the house, after he has taken away the stones, after he scraped the house, after it's been plastered, then the priest shall come and look. And indeed, if the plague has spread in the house, it's an act of leprosy in the house. It's unclean. And he, this being the owner of the home, even after all of that work, shall break down the house. It's stones, it's timber, all the plaster of the house. He shall carry them outside the city to an unclean place. Moreover, he who goes into the house doing all this work while it's shut up shall be unclean until evening the beginning of a new day. He who lies in the house shall wash his clothes, and he who eats in the house shall wash his clothes. Verse 48, but if the priest comes in and examines it, and indeed the plague is not spread in the house, after the house was plastered, then the priest shall pronounce the house clean because the plague is healed. And he shall take to cleanse the house two birds, cedar wood, scarlet, and hyssop. Then he shall kill the priest, one of the birds, in an earthen vessel over running water. And he shall take the cedar wood, the hyssop, the scarlet, and the living bird, and dip them in the blood of the slain bird in the running water, and sprinkle the house seven times. I know that's a very obvious procedure in such a situation. And he shall clean, cleanse the house with the blood of the bird, the running water, the living bird, the cedar wood, the hyssop, the scarlet. Then he shall let the living bird, this is an amazing picture, loose outside the city in an open field, and make atonement for the house. It shall be clean. Now, we're going to leave our commentary on, on that interesting procedure to next Sunday, our next study. For it's, it's really just a repeating of the same process required for a person who is cleansed of leprosy. But we wrap up the section. 
This is the law for any leprous sore and scale, for the leprosy of a garment and of a house, for a swelling and a scab and a bright spot, to teach when it is unclean and when it is clean. This is the law of leprosy. That wasn't too bad, right? We made it. We got through it. There's no question. And again, just by the pure cursory reading of this section, like being diagnosed with leprosy, whether you're a person or you owned a garment or it was your home, like the diagnosing of leprosy, Saraha, was terrible. Like it was severe. The consequences devastating. If leprosy was found in the garment, the garment was burned with fire. And in that day and age, like we might be sitting here thinking, well, um, yeah, I think if I just saw like reddish and greenish in my fat, I'm going to get rid of it. But, but fat, like these things in that day were very costly. Like you didn't have Old Navy to pick up a new fleece. Like, th- like this, this costed you something to lose the garment. Beyond that, if, if the plague was found in a home and you go through all these procedures, but the plague's still there, the entire structure is demolished. And the remnants are taken outside the camp. You lose your home. Total, complete loss for the owner. Beyond that, if you were diagnosed with leprosy, your life would effectively end. Like nothing about your life moving, moving forward, moving from that diagnosis, would ever be the same in any context. Like we, we read that first your clothes would be torn And your head would be bare. You'd have to shave. The the idea is that everyone would know that you were afflicted. You were a leper. You had gotten bad news. In a way, there was a a bit of a public shaming involved with leprosy. Additionally, whenever you approached a commoner, it was your responsibility as a leper to cover your mustache or your mouth And you would have to cry out, unclean, unclean, just to ensure people couldn't inadvertently or on accident rub shoulders with you. By the time we get to Jesus, these specific protocols had had taken on a life of their own. A hundred feet, unclean, unclean. Beyond these things, it was required for the leper to, quote, dwell alone. Like you were immediately isolated, cut off. And again, personalize what that would look like in your life. Like you couldn't go home. You would go to the temple, present yourself to the priest, go through this process. If you got stamped with Saraha, you couldn't go home. Your marriage was over. You'd never see your spouse again. You'd never see your kids. It was over weren't going back to work. In fact, you were instructed to dwell outside of the camp. Like you were excommunicated. You were no longer part of Israel. You were an outsider, an outcast. You can understand, like being a leper, that now was your identity. It's who you were. Like you were literally a dead man walking. In fact, there's some Hebrew writings that indicate that it was just kind of culturally customary that if your significant 
uh, other, your, your spouse, your person, your child, like whoever it was that was diagnosed, like that the family would the next day hold a funeral for you. They'd never see you again. You were effectively dead. You were never coming home. Now, with these things in mind, let's, let's get back to the question. What, what exactly is leprosy, especially in light of all of these things? Now, if you've ever heard a sermon about leprosy, I don't know, maybe you were visiting a church last week, and they were also going verse by verse through Leviticus 13. Or let's say that you attended a Bible study and one of the characters in the study happened to be a leper. It's likely that in, in that context, leprosy was presented as being a picture of sin. Like, like in truth, the correlations between uh, this saraha, this leprosy and, and, and sin, the correlations are, are obvious. Like that's an appropriate connection to make. Like, like leprosy. Sin will slowly kill you. It's incurable. The wages of sin is death. Like leprosy, sin, well, it might manifest, have you ever noticed that? It manifests physically through actions and behaviors, but those are just evidence of what? Of an internal problem? Like in the same way, like we, like how do we determine something's not right? Well, we judge fruit, behavior. We examine as priests, something's off. I'm looking at their life there's a deeper ailment. Like leprosy, in the end, sin. Sin will destroy your relationships. It will. And sin will always limit genuine community. Ultimately, sin separates you from God. And yet, while leprosy, there is no question presents for us this, this typology, this picture of sin. I contend this morning that Sirahath was so much more than a picture. I contend that it was in actuality a literal, physical judgment of God on account of sin. And more than a picture, more than a type, that Sarah was a judgment. Now, now to this point, there is no skirting the reality that in the Old Testament, Sarah did not behave like any other biological disease. Can we just affirm that? Like, you know, the very first mention of leprosy in the Bible, we actually find in Exodus chapter 4, Moses, been commissioned by God, Go let my people go. And, and, and he's concerned that the people are not going to believe that God appeared and commissioned him for such a task. He's worried about that. And so God gives him like two signs that he can perform to convince the people that he has the backing of God. The first is kind of a cool one. He's got this staff and he could take a staff, he could throw it on the ground and it would become a serpent. And then he could grab the serpent and it would become a staff again. Kind of a neat trick. The other one that Moses was given by God, this other kind of like sign, is that Moses, if he goes to the people and he's like, God has sent me, we're going to be delivered, there's this process, and they're like, yeah, we don't really believe you, uh, we need to see a sign. Moses, this is what you can do. Take your hand, put it in your bosom, put it in your shirt, and say, oh, you want to see something? ba ba bam And it's fully leprous. People freak out. 
And then you'd take it and put it back in. Pull it back out. And it'd be cleansed. That's the first mention of leprosy. Like, like again, that kind of a characteristic is not something you typically find associated with diseases. You know, aside from this story within the Old Testament, we have six additional references of leprosy. Now, two of the stories present for us characters who are already affected, like they're infected with leprosy. Two stories. There are four lepers, uh, and this is recorded for us in 2 Kings 4, who just happen uh, to be out. The Assyrian army is sieging. There's this whole thing going. God performs a miracle. The Assyrians think they're being attacked. They run, they leave, and the four lepers come in and find like the camp abandoned and like all this food while everyone's starving inside the camp. But we're not told how they contracted leprosy. That's one of the examples. The other example is a guy named Naaman the Syrian. This is 2 Kings chapter 5. Also, just as presented already infected, we don't, we don't know. Like, neither of these two stories help us at all understand how leprosy was contracted. That said, the other four references in the Old Testament to leprosy, Sarah, reveals something fascinating. And it's this. Sarah. Yes, there was a biological component to it. But it also possessed, what's interesting, it possessed a spiritual pathology as well. In Numbers chapter 12, Moses' sister Miriam questions his leadership. God is not happy about it. So he strikes her with an advanced form of leprosy. Like she'll later sit outside the camp, Moses will intercede, she'll be cleansed. Following Naaman, the Syrian, his miraculous cleansing, again, recorded in 2 Kings 5, Elisha's servant, he ends up like doing something real dirty. He gets real greedy, he wants some money. And in response to that, we're actually told that he is struck immediately by God with an advanced form of sarah, leprosy. Let me read for you the other two accounts and see if you can kind of pick up a, a general theme. 2 Kings 15, let me, let me read you a little passage. And King Azariah did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done, except the high places were not removed. Now, these were the locations for pagan worship. We're told that the people still sacrificed and burned incense on these high places, so the Lord struck the king. And he was a leper until the day of his death. So he dwelt in an isolated house. The Lord struck the king, Sarah, to strike. Second Chronicles 26, let me read you the second story. We're told that when King Uzziah was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. It's a big no-no. So Azariah, different Azariah, not the king, but the priest. He goes in after him. And with him were eight mighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary. You have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. But Uzziah became furious. He had the censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry, leprosy broke out on his forehead. 
before the priest in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, the priest, they looked at him and therefore on his forehead, he was leprous. So they thrust him out of the place. Indeed, he hurried to get out. Why? Because the Lord had struck him. King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. You see, there is no question that biblical leprosy was much, much more than just a picture of sin. And it was something much different than Hansen's disease or leprosy as we know it. You know, the Jewish rabbis went so far as to present surah as an ailment specifically caused by sin and was to be seen as the literal judgment of God. That was the Jewish understanding. Don't forget, again, the Hebrew word, sirah, it means to strike. That's all the word means. In ancient Israel, they went so far as to call the disease that manifested the finger of God. You had been struck by the finger of God. You know, within our passage, we see further evidence of a divine origin. Look again at at chapter 14, verse 34. The Lord tells Moses and Aaron that when you have come into the land of Canaan, which I give you as a possession, and I put the leprous plague in a house. At this point, it's important you know that there are example after example after example. Examples all throughout the Scriptures where God's judgment for sin does manifest as a physical malady or a disease. Like there's examples all over the place. Like the golden calf debacle, Mount Sinai. Exodus 32 verse 35 records that the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. And that word, plagued the people, it's to strike with a physical ailment. You know, even in the New Testament, we find examples of God striking people with a physical ailment on on behalf of sin. Acts 13 records the story of a sorcerer who, who stands against the Apostle Paul. And he is struck by the Lord with blindness. Now, I'll concede this morning that this idea that God was illustrating for His people the fact that the severity of sin was real by striking people with sarah, like this idea that God would say, I care about sin, there's a judgment for sin, and I'm going to strike people with this thing on account of sin. Like that idea, that's something that we kind of, at least in our New Testament, uh, kind of mile-wide, inch-deep view of Christianity, we, we might find that disconcerting. God striking people with a sickness because of sin? No! Now, it's true that it would be theologically wrong to jump to a conclusion that all disease should be seen as the judgment of God. There's no evidence for that in Scripture. If you've got a cold, God's not judging you. It's okay. You just have a cold. Maybe God's judging you. Maybe He's not. You can't reach that conclusion. And yet, here's the thing. Leviticus 13 and 14 It doesn't address all disease, does it? Like, in fact, what we're finding here in chapters 13 and 14 is something very specific. 
that only surfaces a handful of times in all of the Bible. Personally, I have a greater difficulty seeing Syrah'ath as being a type of sin and not an actual judgment. Let me explain. If this was not a divine judgment, this person gets cut off from God, excommunicated from the people of God, for no other reason than they got sick. Like, I have a problem with what that, what that says about God. I didn't do anything wrong. If it's just a type, a picture, that's great. But I have been excommunicated. I have been kicked out. Like, that notion is contrary to what I know of God. You see, a punishment for God to be just must always be in proportion to a crime. Like, we'll get to this more in our next study, but it's worth pointing out. A person was never healed from Syrah. They were only cleansed. Like a perfect example of this is Naaman the Syrian. The, the, really the only example that we see of someone being, being cleansed of leprosy in the Old Testament. Not a Jew, Syrian. And how was he cleansed? Well, Elisha told him to go to the dirty Jordan River and dip in the water seven times. And then he'd be cleansed. Makes zero sense whatsoever medically. Again, spiritual pathology. He was cleansed because of a demonstration of faith in the Word of God. Will you believe me? Will you take my word literally? Will you go do what I instructed? And he does, and he's cleansed. You know, in both Testaments, any recorded instance of a cleansing of leprosy only comes via the direct act of God Himself. Again, it's important to remember that these chapters fall within the first section of Leviticus, which deal with man's relationship with God. And I alluded to this earlier, but it's not an accident that the afflicted is instructed not to go to a doctor, but to come to a priest. And note, the priest was to only be an observer. How is a person diagnosed with Sarahath? It was the Word of God that made the diagnosis, not the priest. If Sarah was seen, and now the evidence of God's judgment on them undeniable, it would make sense why they were swiftly expelled from the camp. Not because they were contagious, but as an example of the seriousness of sin. And what a failure to obey God's commandments would bring into a person's life. You know, we actually see a similar process, a similar idea in very extreme situations, but a, but a church having to demonstrate discipline in the life of an unrepentant sinner, where there's actually a judgment, where you're handed over, you can't come until these things get handled. Like we, we see these principles articulated even within the New Testament. It's worth pointing out also that in the two instances that Jesus ministers to lepers in the Gospels, Mark chapter 1, Luke 17, both of their respective appeals concern, uh, confirm something interesting. Now, again, if you teach through these passages, you know, you kind of establish what leprosy's done in their life, and we'll do this when we get to this, this next section of Scripture. 
But then, but then there's like, well, there was this stigma associated with leprosy that they were experiencing the judgment of God. And that just added more to this and to that. Well, what if they were actually experiencing the judgment of God? Because you know what? They thought they were experiencing the judgment of God. And that's a truth. Like in both of their appeals, in Mark 1, the leper comes and he, and he what does he say? He says, if you're willing. I, like, I know you can. I know you have the ability. I just don't know if you, God, would want to, to cleanse me. Because I know what I did. I know what this is. I know I don't deserve it. Later on, you have ten lepers that, that come to Jesus, and their appeal, <laughs> be merciful on us. Again, no excuse making. They knew they were experiencing God's judgment. Look again at how the section closes. Leviticus 14, verses 54 through 57. This is the law for any leprous sore and scale for the leprosy of a garment of a house, for a swelling and a scab and a bright spot to teach when it is unclean and when it is clean. This is the law of Surah. You understand, seeing God's judgment of sin manifesting in someone else's life, there is a, an overarching redemption to it. And you know why? It reminds you and in this situation, everyone in Israel of two important truths. Like when you see someone do something that they shouldn't have, engage in what was prohibited, unclean, and they experience the judgment of God, there are two things that immediately become clear to you. One, the classifications of okay and not okay were not suggestions. That God had a purpose, he took them seriously. And secondly, because he takes them seriously, we should. Like, like I know that the idea of God striking people for sin is a heavy concept. And there's a component that we should take these things to heart. But I do want to close by saying that there is a measure of grace that I find in these two additional components of the law of leprosy. You know, within the judgment here, God, had, God built in a warning system. This was this, leprosy, Sarahath, and a person was heavy. Consequences severe. But there was a warning system. Like the very fact that Sarahath could exist in a garment or a home, well, it intended to articulate what would happen, right? Cut off or burn. Or utterly destroyed. You see, in a very practical sense, these things intended to illustrate to a person living in sin what would happen if they didn't stop it. That's true today. Even in the context of the cross, there is a judgment of sin, an ultimate one, but there's practical consequences. Like the lesson of Sarah in either a garment or a home was to make sure everyone knew sin will destroy if you don't deal with it in drastic measures. In fact, it was to cost you something so, so dearly you would have to think, is this worth it at all? But there's another measure of grace in this law of leprosy within a law that articulated a judgment for which there was no cure or human remedy, God 
also establishes a procedure by which a person could not only be declared cleansed, but fully restored. And it's in the first 32 verses of Leviticus 14 that we find one of the most radical pictures of the cross of Calvary in all of the Old Testament. But we'll have to get to those things in our next study. So, Father, Lord, thank you for your word.